Hello and welcome to this podcast from the Royal College of Anaesthetists. I'm Dr Sarah Muldoon, a member of the Royal College of Anaesthetists Council and a consultant neuroanaesthetist at King's College Hospital in South London. This podcast is being recorded in celebration of World Anaesthesia Day and the topic of this episode is anaesthetists during COVID-19. Further podcasts will be published alongside this conversation, so please have a look out for those as well to learn more about what anaesthetists and anaesthesia are all about. Today I'm joined by Dr Helge Johansson, a consultant anaesthetist at Imperial Healthcare in London for the past 13 years with special interest in trauma, upper GI surgery and obstetrics. For seven years Helge was clinical director of his department and is now a member of the Royal College of Anaesthetists Council. Hi Helgi and thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure, nice to see you and I'm sorry we can't do this face to face but it's going to be good anyway. Helgi, I'll start with an easy question I think. What led you to your journey into anaesthesia in the first place? So this is, well nobody really goes into medical school um, saying I want to be an anaesthetist. In fact, most of the public don't really know what an anaesthetist is. And most kids who want to be doctors have experience of other things such as uh, usually being a paediatrician because they've they've been to a paediatrician or something like that, or the GP or something. And um, almost no one will think, oh, I I really want to do anaesthesia. Um, During medical school, I always slightly admire the anaesthetists um, so in my surgical blocks, um, when I was in the operating theatre, the surgeons would be there just um, concentrating and, and, and not really paying attention to the students. And I just gradually head up toward the top end of the table and, um, and speak to the anaesthetist. And they were usually really keen to, um, to teach and really, really friendly and knew a lot clearly. And, um, and I thought, yeah, I want to be like that. But also, they weren't just friendly and keen to teach. They were a bit cool, <laughs> and um, yeah, and they were. And and um, and also throughout my med school, whenever there was a crisis, um, once the anaesthetist arrived, a, a, a sense of calm descended on everyone. Um, it didn't mean that people stopped doing the things that they needed to do, but actually, they had somebody there that knew what to do, and they had somebody there had, that had done this before and was in their comfort zone. And being in your comfort zone in the crisis is something that I really, really admire. And it was something that I really admired in anesthesia at the time. So then I qualified as a doctor. um, And as I said, many people don't really think that anesthetists are doctors. In fact, I was at a party one time um, when uh, this highly educated woman was talking to me. And so she said, so, do you're an anaesthetist so do you do some of your training with doctors and then branch off which <laughs> you should read as so you're an anaesthetist did you fail your medical school exams <laughs> and then and then go into anaesthesia as a second choice um but no i didn't fail my medical exams i passed my medical exams in fact i got a distinction in medicine surgery and obsangaini um which was all right and um and then i got slightly inspired by the physicians um, uh, there were some very inspiring physicians at Bart's at the time, um, and they inspired me into going into general medicine first. Um, so I did that for a couple of years. And I had a little bit of a, 
I, I sit down and I think about my career somewhere about the middle of my uh, my senior house of year, which is kind of two to three years after you qualify. And for many people, that's kind of an idea of your motivation because you're you're being slogged really hard. You don't feel like you belong anywhere yet, um, and you're not quite sure of your specialty. Um, so I, I had a little rethink about things that I liked and things that I didn't like, and so. I, I thought, okay, I like acute situations, I like teamwork, I'm a friendly sort of guy, I, I want to be interacting with people, I love interacting with patients as well, and anyone that tells you that anesthetists don't interact with patients are really talking rubbish. Absolutely, um, are, I find are, anything, I have more valuable time with patients now than I did doing other types of jobs as a doctor. Absolutely, absolutely. And and the communication skills that we have as anaesthetists are, are absolutely vital in our job. Um, so, so I was thinking that and I was thinking, what do I hate about medicine? I hate ward rounds and I hate clinics. Um, I just don't like sitting still or... or Although obviously still. there are some people who really enjoy that and it's important that they fulfil those roles in the NHS. Absolutely. And I, I admire them greatly. And I don't think there are any worse doctors or anything like that. It's just that that isn't for me. And I, I, I prefer, I, I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie, and I like things to be happening. I like quick results and things. So anesthesia actually suits my personality very well. Interesting and so, you say that, Helgi, about yeah. being an adrenaline junkie, because lots of people think we have a very sedate and boring job. Yeah, which it absolutely isn't. Well, it can be at times, but that's fine. And that's when you find the medical students cowering in the corner and you start teaching them. <laughs> um, so so then I thought, okay, I could do anesthesia. Well, yeah, that'd, that'd be quite fun. Um, I could do radiology. Um, and I, I nearly did radiology. And then I went down to the x-ray department and I just decided it was a bit too dark and too quiet. Um, and so I went for anesthesia and um, kind of never looked back. There was also something else that happened around that time. Uh, on the 30th of April 1999, um, there was a bomb in Soho um, at the Admiral Junk Duncan. And I was actually drinking coffee just up the road at the time. And I heard the blast. Um, and it was a very strange sound. It just sounded like a, a almost like a champagne cork being popped from not that far away. Um, and I was one of the two first doctors on the scene. And the feeling, I, this was before I did anesthesia, and the feeling of helplessness, um, because I didn't have the skills to be that person who was calm in that crisis and who knew what to do, was really awful. Um, and it was one of the things that I kind of decided to go into anesthesia at that time. And it was one of the things that really firmed up my decision and thought, I thought, yes, that is, this is the right career for me. And I don't want to be in this situation ever again. I want to be helpful. I want to be useful. And I want to be able to do something for these people that were brought out um, severely injured, some um, semi-comatose. Um, and, and so that was anesthesia. And it was kind of my therapy for being close to a terrorist bomb. Wow. And you went from that early, really traumatic experience to working at one of London's four major trauma centres. Mm. And in recent years, the capital has, of course, had to deal with a number of really sad, really terrible major incidents. 
So how does your experience working as an anaesthetist in those times compare to that early experience before you started your anaesthetic career? Um, very, very different. Um, and very different because um, for two reasons. First of all, we weren't at the scene. Um, and so just to um, put a bit of background in this, um, uh, on I think it was the 25th of March 2017, um, uh, a, an assailant, drove and mowed people down across Westminster Bridge um, and, and then stabbed a police officer um, with many of the injuries were brought to our hospital. Um, and um, and uh, and we obviously uh, went into a major incident kind of moulage and did what we needed to do. Um, so so the difference here was that um, uh, I, I wasn't at the scene for a start. Um, we we practice and we drilled down. And in fact, just that morning, our lead of trauma had been going through the um, the major incident protocols and and practices. Um, and so it was actually fresh in a lot of people's minds um, what to do uh, at four thirty in the afternoon when um, when the patient started to come coming in. And um, this is where teamwork is so, so important. Um, and um, I have to say the teamwork that us, we as a department and actually as, as a whole hospital displayed, I'm not gonna big us up that much. We are actually, yes, I am. I'm gonna big us up because our, the teamwork we, we displayed was absolutely amazing. And it was a real privilege for us to be working together. And you realize that you work with some really incredible people. And I just, so much respect goes out to them. Um, and and we could have taken many more patients than we took that day, and we would have given them really excellent care as well. That's a really moving and eloquent description, Helgi, of how a major trauma centre prepares for a harrowing incident like that. Do you think that level of planning and your trusts, systems that were in place for dealing with that sort of major incident, helped them to prepare and deliver care during this very new major incident that we've all been living through the COVID-19 pandemic? Um, yes, I think so. And uh, not necessarily the systems as such. I mean, the, the, there's a lot of similarities between um, COVID-19 and and what we will call, um, it, it is a major incident basically, isn't it? Um, and well, it's a, an incredible major incident. Um, and what we did on that day, there are also many differences. We didn't have much notice for the um, for the Westminster bombing, uh, Westminster attack, um, and well, about half an hour before the patient started to roll in. So um, the ability of us uh, and our colleagues and the hospital as a whole to be flexible and to be able to adapt very quickly and take on new roles and do new things that we haven't done before is something that actually I think at St Mary's where I mainly work um, we've done very well um, in the major incidents and that helped us to uh, prepare for Covid. We had longer to prepare um, and probably probably about a week or two before we realised quite how serious things were going to get. Um, and um, during which time many of us actually got COVID as well, me included. Um, and, um, and during that time, uh, we practiced our 
intubation drills, um, what to do when when we're putting people on the ventilators. Um, normally, I, at this point, for a podcast that's aimed at the public, I have to explain what a ventilator is. But actually, um, for the last six months, now everyone knows what a ventilator is, and everyone's become an expert in ventilation and intensive care, which is quite amazing. Um, so they actually know what intensive care doctors do, and by association, know quite a lot of what we anaesthetists do. Um, so, so we, as a department, um, changed the way we work. We went from um, mainly the, the consultants were mainly daytime workers, and we were on call at night. Um, went to a full shift system where we were resident in the hospital. Um, we expanded our intensive care. Our ventilated beds uh, before COVID were about 16 ventilated beds. We brought them up to about 60 um, by effectively stopping elective work, um, getting the ventilators from the operating theatres and using them to ventilate the critically ill people. Um, and we organised ourselves so that um, so that we we looked after these patients safely and um, and I hope effectively. Um, and it was no mean feat. It was an absolutely mammoth task to do this. And it was incredible how well our department, and I know a lot of other departments around the country, um, adapted and changed their working patterns and changed the way we work. Was there anything you found yourself doing as a consultant anaesthetist during the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic that you actually thought was behind you, that you'd left behind in your medical student or more junior doctor days? Um, yeah, so um, every anaesthetist does quite a lot of intensive care during their training. And during my training, I probably did. Uh, so my training was seven years in anaesthesia um, and I out of those seven years, I probably did two, two and a half years worth of intensive care, um, kind of on and off. And sometimes you were doing theatre lists in the daytime and intensive care calls at night and things like that. Um, and so actually I was quite experienced in intensive care by the time I became a consultant and I nearly became an intensive care consultant, but then I went into a purely anaesthetic job um, and I left in intensive care behind me. Um, so here I was 13 years later, brushing up on all my intensive care skills and becoming an ICU consultant again, um, which was strange, um, quite, uh, it's difficult, I'm not going to say enjoyable because it was a very odd experience altogether, but it was a satisfying experience to be doing intensive care again because I, I didn't hate it um, and I nearly did it as a career. Um, and, um, and, and, and so it was quite interesting to be back in the saddle doing it and thinking, actually, yeah, I'm, uh, I remember most of this. Um, and, um, and running a team as well. The way you work is very different because you've got a bigger team, more interaction with nurses, much more interaction with relatives as well. Yeah. Um, and, and in a really strange environment yeah. um, with, with all the PPE and... Um, and the remote consultations with the relatives. It's just a very, very odd way of doing it. Yeah, and I have to say, as, as difficult as I found the work and as tough as it was to see how the patients were suffering and how the relatives who were kept so far from them were suffering, it was probably the period in my medical career where I felt the most useful and the most valuable to my hospital mm. and to the health service in general. Yeah. 
and and something that I I find I mean it it was a hard time, um, but I can say hand on heart for me and for my department that uh, that we did not shirk during the COVID crisis. We did our bit, and we went above and beyond uh, what anyone could possibly expect of us. And I'm proud of that, and I'm proud of my department and how we dealt with it. It was hard work, but it was immensely satisfying. I, I, I feel that we chipped in and we did what we had to do um, for this. Helga, I, th- I would certainly echo your sentiments about what my department and my trust did, and I'm sure that anaesthetists all over the country would hand in heart say the same thing about theirs. Are there any 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 silver linings that came from the peak of the COVID-19? Anything that you will keep doing personally um, that you weren't doing before or that your department is going to continue doing? Uh, yeah, I think uh, there are always silver linings. Um, I think um, some of it is about uh, just making our pathways a bit more streamlined. For instance, one of the things that that happened during the COVID pandemic, uh, particularly the surge that we had, um, was that we tried to limit the number of visits our patients uh, had to go to hospital for. Um, and previously, if you were having a major operation, and that, for instance, I do uh, a lot of cancer surgery on massive, massive operations, esophagectomies and gastrectomies. And those patients would be coming in for an anaesthetic pre-assessment clinic, they'd be coming in for various other bits and pieces. Um, and a lot of that could have been done remotely. And, and actually some of the things that have become very, very useful and very well done now is that streamlining. And a lot of our pre-assessment is now done over the video phone. Um, One additional um, benefit is that most of the older population have learned how to use all this video technology because it was the only way they could communicate with their children and grandchildren. So the excuse that people use for not using the video technology, oh, the elderly can't can't, can't deal with it just isn't true anymore they manage it perfectly well and that's something that's really really interesting for me and I, I think it just brought us back you know brought us together um, as a department quite a lot um, because we were working with each other rather than just in the next door theatres mm-hmm. um, and working as a as a team which was an, a really incredible thing and a wonderful privilege um, so I think those are those are some of the things that um, that COVID and the surge has um, made um, more accessible. Um, I think also uh, getting some good news. Um, For instance, some of the people um, that we looked after who were really, really terribly ill were actually members of the medical profession or um, like we had a uh, nurse on our intensive care unit and one of our own cleaners was on our intensive care Mm -hmm. unit. And hearing that they're getting better through other friends and through mutual friends is just a really, really satisfying, wonderful thing. And uh, really, it it brings me to the verge of tears every time I think about (laughs) it. And I I think it can be, it's such a positive thing. I just hope we never have to go through it in the same way again. I know we're coming into another surge, but hopefully it won't be anything like what we had in March and April. 
And what do you think as we enter this period where numbers are climbing again? What do you think anaesthetists would need to do this time round? Is there any way we can protect those patients we normally see who don't have COVID-19? I think we've got better at that, actually. Um, and I, th I think something that I want to emphasise as well is reassurance um, that our hospitals are much safer than they were in March and April. Um, there's more testing around, people are being tested, etc. Um, and also um, uh, that it is so important to seek medical attention if you have something wrong with you. And I'm actually really worried for all those people who have symptoms who are not coming into hospital because of the COVID crisis and whose undiagnosed cancer is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and we're not going to be able to cure them of their cancer. And those are going to be um, COVID deaths as well, just not directly from COVID. And that's actually where our next mammoth task is going to be. Our mammoth task is going to be to continue elective work and to expand our ability to um, look after patients with um, coronavirus. And that's where anaesthetists are going to be the absolute linchpin and where we're going to be vital in that response because we're needed by both services um, and, um, and we need to make sure that we don't sacrifice one service for the other. I think you're absolutely right. This crisis has demonstrated perhaps more than any other that anaesthetists are integral both to maintaining the day-to-day -day elective running of the hospital and in responding very quickly to unexpected and emergency situations as we've done during COVID-19. Hmm. Hellgate, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having podcast. me. Lovely and to see you. You too, Elgie. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. There are other podcasts available in this series to celebrate World Anesthesia Day, and I hope you'll listen to those as well. <laughs>